And Father, because you're great and we are not, we're made in your image. There's inherent dignity in each of us because you made us. Because you're gracious, you love us. But you're great. You're insurpassably, incomparably greater than we are. So help us do the only reasonable thing, the only right and humble thing, and listen to you and love you and order our lives by what you say and not merely by what we think. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Come on in, everybody. I'd love for you to open your Bible to the Gospel of Luke while I tell you about a discovery I made last week in Texas. First of all, it's awesome here in Huntington Beach. (laughs) Texas is my home state, and I love Texas too, but West Texas and Huntington Beach, absolutely no comparison. (laughs) Amazing barbecue, though. Back-to-back meals, in fact, but that's a whole other story. I made a discovery last week in Texas. I can preach shorter. Whoever's clapping over here to my left, I'm not going to look because I wouldn't want to ruin our friendship, but uh, you're hurting my feelings. No, I, I can. Somebody else's church, tighter schedule than ours, more less time than I self-indulgently allow myself here, and, and I can. I was gone last week because a church that took our family on for support 20 years ago when we first started serving as missionaries, I'd never visited the church. They just took us on sight unseen out of pure love and, and kindness. And 20 years later, they, they asked if I could come and encourage them about missions, so of course I did. But here we are. Apparently, I can do this in less time than I normally take, so let's try it, shall we? Is that okay with everybody? No, no. Oh, that, see, now that's nice. That's, that's what we all <laughs> want to hear. It's not true, it's not sincere, but, uh, but it's still very encouraging. When we come to Luke chapter 11, you're in difficult territory. This is a passage that I've been looking forward to with a strange mixture of excitement, but also a little bit of dread, because honestly, I didn't understand it. It's some of the most cryptic things that Jesus ever said, and Bible scholars themselves aren't entirely sure and agreed with what he's saying connects to everything that's been happening. And a word about that. Before the first service this morning, a lady came up to me and asked me a really personal, humble, wonderful question. This summer, we started reading a book together called Knowing God. That's a book about theology that explains chapter by chapter who God is, not from the author's opinion, but he just teaches what the Bible says. And her question was, it seems hard to me. Is there something wrong with me, or is this just a tough subject? Anybody else have that experience if you tried to read Knowing God? It's tough, isn't it? There's nothing wrong with her. She's very bright. That book And the Bible that you have open in front of you can be difficult sometimes, even for pastors, because it deals with the greatest person and the greatest subject of all. It deals with God. And the nature of knowing another person is difficult. 
In fact, I would say if you can completely get your arms around everything that you believe about God, that all that proves is that that God came out of your own mind. It's not actually the God of the Bible. Let me explain. Because of God's own will and his incredible sacrifice and kindness, God has made himself known in human history. He hasn't left us to wonder who he is. He has spoken and given us his word in actual writing. And he, most importantly, has sent his own son. In fulfillment of all the prophecies that are written down in the Bible you're holding, Jesus actually came. God became a man, walked among us, spoke of God, spoke as God, did the works and the miracles of God to give a public, verifiable, knowable testimony that God was real and working in the universe. Theologians call that, for instance, the perspicacity of Scripture. What? No wonder people don't understand theologians. In the world does perspicacity mean? All that means is that Scripture is clear, that God, because of His own efforts, has made Himself known. In other words, God's not playing hard to get. He has worked hard to make himself understood. But because it is God who is speaking and God that you're thinking about and God that you're dealing with, of course there's going to be moments of mystery and difficulty and wondering and not being sure. That's just the nature of personal relationships. Those of you who are in some kind of loving relationship, whether you're dating and hoping to get engaged or engaged and hoping to get married or married and actually enjoying it, okay? If you're in a loving relationship with someone else, do you understand everything about that person? No. Why is that? Because they're another person. They're very much like you. In fact, they're much more like you than you were like God, and you don't completely understand everything about them. In fact, because you're a person, you don't understand everything about yourself, do you? You ever walk away from a situation saying, why did I say that? Or my personal favorite, and I say this to myself in the interior voice all the time, what was I thinking? Anybody else ever do this? That's a weird thing to ask yourself. You were with yourself the whole time. If you don't understand what you were thinking, how could the rest of us possibly know what you're thinking? That's just the nature of personal relationships. And if you can't really comprehend yourself or your parents or your children or your best friend or your loved one, imagine the magnitude of understanding God. So when Jesus, the Son of God, is walking the earth and speaking the words of God, sometimes it's crystal clear and a child can understand it, but because there are other things that are more difficult than that, and because we're reading about something that happened long ago and happened in a place that was far away, sometimes we're not entirely sure what we're reading. But today I'm going to have to try to explain it to you. And as soon as we begin talking about Jesus, we immediately run into an obstacle mentally and spiritually that is a result, it's a byproduct of living in the culture that we do. Our culture has worn itself out in a lot of different ways 
for over 200 years here in the United States to convince you that the only reality there is is the reality that you can see, touch, feel, taste, and hear. In other words, materialism. That all that there is is matter. How it got here, that's another mystery and that's another story, but certainly the only things that are actually true and real and factual are in the universe are things like this table. So when we begin speaking about the supernatural because of this cultural conditioning that makes it difficult even for sincere Christians to pray sometimes and think that something is actually happening and that someone is actually listening, we immediately, anytime you encounter the supernatural, you hit a barrier. And C.S. Lewis knew that very, very well. If you haven't read much of C.S. Lewis, let me recommend him to you. And there is much more to him than the Chronicles of Narnia. And the Chronicles of Narnia are spectacular, and the books are much better than the movies. And the books, the Chronicles of Narnia, can benefit you however old you are. But he wrote much more than that. Lewis was a renowned scholar in his time. He was a veteran of World War I. He was a scholar at places like Oxford. He was a deeply learned, scholarly man. He was also a skeptic. And through a lot of different things that God brought into his life, he came to a grudging, unwilling discovery of the truth of God and the truth of Christ. And in his, the second half of his life, he became one of the most brilliant storytellers and philosophical defenders of the truth of Christianity. One of his well-known books is called, a little thin book called The Screwtape Letters. The Screwtape Letters is his wildly inventive imagination. is a little thin book. If it didn't stop and make you think so much, you could read it in a couple of days. It's a little thing. It's one half of the correspondence in Lewis's imagination between a senior demon and a junior demon. The junior demon has been given the task of making sure that a young man stays away from God. Halfway through the correspondence, earlier than that really, the young man becomes a Christian, and then the focus becomes how do we tempt a Christian. So it's an upside-down world, and Lewis's correspondence between these two demons, Screwtape and Wormwood, God is called the enemy with a capital E, and Christians, the people being tempted, are referred to as patients. And Lewis put through this storytelling, Lewis puts his finger on the difficulty that we're facing when we encounter the supernatural. Let me read this to you. Remember, this is a senior demon teaching a junior demon. He writes, I once had a patient, a sound atheist, who used to read in the British Museum. One day, as he sat reading, I saw a train of thought in his mind beginning to go the wrong way. The enemy, the enemy, of course, was at his elbow in a moment. Before I knew where I was, I saw my 20 years' work beginning to totter. If I had lost my head and begun to attempt a defense by argument, I should have been undone. But I was not such a fool. I struck instantly at the part of the man which, had been, which I had best under my control and suggested that it was just about time he had some lunch. The enemy presumably made the counter-suggestion you know how you can never, one can never quite overhear what he says to them? That this was more important than lunch. At least I think that's what he must have 
That must have been his line for when I said, quite. In fact, much too important to tackle at the end of a morning. The patient brightened up considerably, and by the time I had added, much better to come back after lunch and go into it with a fresh mind, he was already halfway to the door. Once he was in the street, the battle was won. I showed him a newsboy shouting the midday paper and a number 73 bus going past, and before he reached the bottom of the steps, I had gotten into him an unalterable conviction that whatever odd ideas might come into a man's head when he was shut up alone with his books, a healthy dose of real life, by which he meant the bus and the newsboy, was enough to show him that all that sort of thing just couldn't be true. You ever had that experience reading your Bible or going to a church service? You have an experience of God, you believe God is speaking to you, and then you leave that environment and you kind of look around at the bus going by and the sun beating down and you feel the pavement under your feet. And you know, that was weird. That was just being emotional. That was just the lights. That was just the sound. This is the real world. That battle to believe that this physically visible world is all there is, that is the battle. And when you come to Luke chapter 11, Jesus, the Son of God, who made the world and everything that exists in it, is really getting into a very heated conversation with his opponents. At this point in Luke chapter 11, Jesus has turned the corner, so to speak. He is headed straight to the cross, and all of his miracles have been insufficient, and the people around him are skeptically demanding that he do more and more things. Look with me in Luke chapter 11. You'll see what I mean. Verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. Pretty plain spoken, don't you think? It's a tough opener for any crowd. The crowds are thronging around him, and he says, the people in my day, the people around me are evil. Why? He explains. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Well, already the skepticism may kick in. You see, no matter what Jesus had done, and he has done the most extraordinary things anyone has ever seen, he has acted and taught and worked miracles with the very authority of God. And like, unlike anyone else, Jesus is doing everything in the name of God publicly. In other words, he's opening up his life, his character, his miracles, he's opening them up to inspection. He's not going off to a mountain and claiming to having come down the mountain, have some sort of vision that no one can verify. No, he's living publicly for everyone to examine his life. And no matter what he does, and no matter how big the crowds get, what Luke says, as the crowds get bigger, they want more. And Jesus reaches something like the end. He says, you want more and more signs, but the sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. For as, the, for as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. What's he mean? Well, you'd have to know the story of Jonah. 
Centuries earlier, God was blessing a prophet in an evil time, and he told him, leave your people and go to the most wicked people in the world. Go to the Assyrians and go especially to their capital city of Nineveh and tell them, repent and come back to God or suffer judgment. And Jonah, who knew how evil they were, and the Assyrians were legendarily cruel in war. They were some of the first terrorists of war. They would win in such a brutally and spectacular, cruel fashion that many of their enemies surrendered without a single sword drawn. Jonah said, nope, I quit. And he ran. He went in literally the opposite direction. And you know the rest of the story. Jesus believes it. He tells it as history. He says that God continued to make his once blessed prophet sort of a comic figure who gets himself into a storm, knows that it's his fault, tells the pagans in the ship, throw me overboard, no sense for all of you to die, just kill me. So they throw him overboard, but God's not done with Jonah. God rescues Jonah by having him swallowed alive, and he is so reluctant and resentful to do what God said that how long does it take him to call out to God for help? Three days. If you were swallowed alive and it's physically possible, how long would it take you to call out for help? I'm calling out to God on the way down to the water, right? Three days later, Jonah repents one of the great prayers of the Bible in Jonah chapter 2. He is released. He preaches reluctantly and grudgingly. All of Nineveh repents and comes back to God, and the book ends with the tragic comic note with the prophet fuming that God is so good to forgive these people. And the people around Jesus are saying, we don't care what you've done, do some more. Can you make the sun dance? Can you give us a cosmic sign in the heavens? Show some more. And Jesus says, you're evil, what you're going to get now is the sign of Jonah. And he refers back to another part of their history. Verse 31, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Who's the queen of the south? You'd have to read even further back in your Old Testament and discover that a woman, named, a woman who is referred to as the queen of Sheba heard of the renown of Solomon's wisdom and the incredible financial prosperity of his kingdom and marveling that anyone could be so wise and be so blessed made a long journey to see if it was all true. And the Bible says she tested him with the hardest questions she could find, and Solomon hit every single one out of the park. He answered everything, and this pagan woman went home with a clear witness of who the real God was. Now, what is Jesus telling you here? He is telling you this, which is so hard to believe for 21st century Americans, that there is a spiritual reality beyond our sight that only Jesus can show us. That God in his great love has intervened in a physically present, publicly visible way in the world that he has made to give you a very clear idea 
that actually put on human flesh and spoke a human language and suffered human needs and frailties and actually died a human death on a Roman cross so that you would know exactly who God is. There is a spiritual reality beyond this world, beyond what we can see, and that Jesus can show us what that is. And Jesus is saying, Jonah told people the truth. He told them about God. The queen of Sheba heard of God's wisdom, and I'm greater than either one of them. And in eternity, the people of Nineveh and the queen of the south will say to you, how could you be so stupid? How could you be so foolish? How could you be so rebellious that you actually had God himself there? And the sign of Jonah, the proof of all this, Jesus explains, is his resurrection. See, Jonah preached to the people of Nineveh, but the sign that he had come from God was this incredible miracle of the fish. Jesus explains it very clearly in Matthew 12, verse 40. If you can read that, read that off the screen with me. Here's Jesus explaining his connection with the story of the prophet Jonah. The Bible says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Why did God through, go through that farce with Jonah? Why make his prophet such a pathetic, actually comic figure where you can read it and you can say to yourself, buddy, why are you so slow? Why aren't you getting this? Well, it was a message to Israel in Jonah's day, and it was a picture of God doing a greater miracle in the days of Jesus. And the whole reason we're here, and the only reason we can sing these songs, and this can make any sense, is if Jesus actually rose from the dead. Because if Jesus died the way so many men did on a Roman cross, if he died and stayed dead the way people do, you're wasting your time here this morning. This is the most foolish thing in the world. In fact, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15, we're the most pitiful people on earth. Think about what you've been doing. You've been singing to a God who doesn't exist and cannot hear. You've been reading a book that tells you a lie. You've been hanging on to something, hoping that it's true without any basis in actual fact that will get you not only safely through this life, but give you eternal life in the life that comes immediately after death. You say, well, that's really blunt. I'm just telling you what 1 Corinthians 15 says. This is why the miracle of the life of Jesus is so different from every other person who has ever spoken on behalf of God and claimed that God was speaking through them. If you don't think that still happens, walk through Barnes & Noble. Nobody goes to bookstores anymore, but try it. Go through Barnes & Noble, and they've got a spirituality section, and just take a stroll through. You're going to see every spiritual idea imaginable in books. One guy's in touch with the warlock, one guy's in touch with the former self, another communes with rivers and rocks, and they all have visions and insight and understanding and dreams. How do you know which one is telling you the truth? Because honestly, you weren't there when that person received that vision. Maybe their dog did speak to them. How do you know? You're not in a position to judge. This is what makes the claims of Christ so different. 
He walked the earth in actual places that some of you will visit in a few weeks in Israel. He preached in the synagogue of Capernaum. He lived his life publicly. He invited everyone to examine him, and if you'll forgive the phrase, he called his own shot. He said, this book that we've had for centuries and millennia speaks of me. I'm the one that was promised a thousand years earlier. I'm the one that Isaiah spoke of. I'm the one that David told you about, and I'm going to prove it by coming back from the dead. And then he did. And if anyone can live publicly inviting his skeptics to check him out and check his claims, and then he can verifiably rise from the dead in such a remarkable way that his disciples, who were just guys, they were just ordinary men. The most common profession among them was commercial fishermen. And that's hard work. And that's good work. And it's fed me a lot of good fish in my own lifetime. But these are not rubes. These are not chumps. They're practical men. And after they saw Jesus back from the dead, the same men that ran for their lives in terror made a lifelong decision. They, will, they said to a man and many women, you'll have to kill us to shut us up. We're not taking it back because it's true. It's worth living for. He's worth trusting. In fact, he's worth dying for. So if you want us to be quiet... Kill us. And that's right here in the Bible. You can read these once cowardly men say, we cannot stop telling what we've seen and heard. It was real. It was public. Paul says he appeared to more than 500 people at once. In other words, in this cryptic saying, as Jesus begins to argue with people in his day, he's telling you there is a spiritual reality beyond us, beyond what you're experiencing right now, that Jesus alone can show you. And what that means for you, number two, is that you have a personal responsibility to respond to Jesus, to deal with him. That's what verse 31 tells me. I'm sorry, verse 33, look. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. And that's one of the phrases that made me stop and think for a couple of weeks. Because what he's saying is really obvious. If the house is dark and all you've got is candlelight, you don't light a candle and then put it under a bowl. You put it up high so that it can illumine the whole room. But what's he talking about? He's just saying this. I've been clear. The crowds are coming for a reason. He's been clear. He's said and done things that are historic, that are earth-shaking. And the only reason people aren't believing him already, and instead as if he were some kind of magician saying, do something else, do something else, is because their hearts are twisted. It's an evil generation, Jesus said. What does that mean? That what is true of them is true of us. Every single heart is broken and turned away from God in sin. That's why this world is so hard. There's not a part of it that hasn't been stained by sin. Every single one of you, including me, perhaps beginning with me, deals every day with something called shame and guilt. Why is that? Because we know the right thing to do, and too often we don't do it. 
because people take advantage of us and abuse us, because there's not one part of this life that you don't have to keep an eye on because you know it can all get really, really hard in just a second. Have you noticed? It's all hard. Why? Because this generation is evil, and Jesus has stepped into it. And he hasn't stood apart from it. He has actually endured its evil as no one ever has. And in verse 33, what he's telling you is, I came as a bright light and I haven't hidden from you. I've told you exactly who I am and exactly what God wants. In other words, Jesus has given a clear witness and he's calling us to the same thing that Jonah called the people of Nineveh, repentance. One of the victories of the culture is that it's made words like sin laughable and repentance sounds so churchy and so out of this world that people laugh and joke about it. What's it mean? Repentance means to turn around. It literally means to make a U-turn, to be walking away from God, realizing that you're dead wrong, you're lost and you're headed the wrong direction, to spin on your heel, do a 180, and come back to God. That's exactly what Jesus is calling for. So when you see someone baptized, as we did this morning in both services, what that person is announcing is this. I was going my own way, but Jesus, in his love, was clear to me. He overcame my skepticism. He showed me who he was. He has forgiven my sin, and now I'm walking with him. And this verse... These verses, which I found so cryptic, are really the heart of the matter. Look in verse 34. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light, but when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. And I read that a few weeks ago, and I said, well, that makes sense to me, but I'm not really sure what he's talking about. Did anybody else have that experience? Okay, so it was just me. Great. <laughs> How humbling. What's the connection? Jesus is saying, I've been like a bright light in your world. And your eye lets light in. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body is full of darkness. What's he telling them? He's telling them in a very first century Jewish way, I turn the light on, the problem is you're blind. It's not that I'm not clear, it's that you can't and won't see. And that's a hard thing. Let's follow his word picture. If a woman is utterly, perfectly blind, how much good will we do her turning on all the lights in the room? What if we bring some more lights in? What if we bring in a spotlight and just make the room so bright it's hot? Would that help? Not if she's blind. That's what Jesus is saying. In your unbelief, you're blind. The light of God is shining right in front of you. What's broken is the receptor. The light is shining. You won't let it in. And what that has done, it has plunged your entire body, your whole life is full of darkness. Verse 35, therefore be careful lest the light in you be darkness. That phrase means a lot to me, and here's where I think it meets 21st century America. 21st century America, this is really our cultural mantra. 
This is at the bottom of many of our beliefs and many of our decisions. 21st century America says something like this. Hey, baby, you just follow your heart. Every Disney movie for the last 30 years has had some variation of that. Check it out. The books that you read, the movies that entertain you, the podcasts that you listen to, check them, measure them by what Jesus is saying. You're going to discover that many times they say opposite things. As a pastor, men and women have confided in me for over 20 years, and sometimes they'll admit, they'll say across a cup of coffee, face to face with no shame, that they're about to do something foolish and wicked, something that would have horrified them just a few years ago. But they have to do it, and they're going to do it because their heart is leading them. And I have to be true to myself. I hear a little laughter. Does that sound recognizable to you? What does Jesus say instead? Jesus says, verse 35, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. In other words, be careful that the heart and the emotions you're trusting are not actually leading you into further darkness. Here's a simple biblical clue. You follow your heart apart from Jesus, it'll take you into darkness every single time. See, the reason this story is so dramatic and filled with tension and these cryptic sayings and the skepticism flying back and forth between Jesus and the crowd is you have a clash of wills. Jesus is saying, I came from a world and I have a life beyond you. I know exactly what's happening. I have seen all of reality. You only see a part of it, and you don't want to listen to me. You don't want to listen to me because you think that you already understand things. You think that the light that is in you lets you see the truth about who I am, but it's actually darkness. Heard a really powerful testimony this week through the written testimony of a man who God delivered from alcoholism. And when he went to his first meeting regarding his alcoholism, and he had so much skepticism, and he's listening to the guy who's talking, and he's listening to other people talk about the struggle, somebody brought him up short with this little saying, your best thinking got you here. Ouch. Your best thinking, apart from Jesus, will lead you into that kind of destruction. It may not be alcohol, but it will be death. It will be meaninglessness. It will be a lie. This is what Jeremiah said about the, about the human heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Here's the answer. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. In other words, if I haven't been clear, and I'm almost done, because I discovered in Texas I can do this a little quicker. <laughs> if I haven't been clear, the person I am putting before you is not my own wisdom. I'm telling you, I struggle, I fail, I sin. Every time I think I know better than Jesus, every single time, it's a foolish and colossal failure. And only by the grace of God have I not wrecked my life completely. Why? Because Jesus knows all of spiritual reality, and that 
his appearance in the world gives you a responsibility to do something with this Savior, and your heart will not lead you to him. Your heart was stained and broken in the fall into sin, just like everything else in this universe. To really follow him, you have to humble yourself and go after him. That's why Jesus said to these men when he first started calling them, he said, put those nets down and you come and follow me. What did that mean? They had to put down the things they thought their life was, the thought, things they thought they should be about, and move to follow him. And he tells us at the end of this passage that your response to Jesus is going to transform your entire life beginning right now. Verse 36. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. What's Jesus saying here? He's addressing the human condition. Listen, here's the reality of everyone that came to church today in this church or any other. We all have dark corners. There are parts of our life that we have not put under the control and the grace of Jesus. That's how people end up in alcoholism meetings. That's how people end up in ruined lives and broken friendships and in shame and guilt, thinking that nothing and no one can help them. Jesus said something incredible. He said, I'm the light. If you will open up your eye, if you will have a proper response to me, all shine in and all the darkness that is in your life will be transformed and your whole life will shine brightly. That doesn't happen from, day, from one day to the next, but in the 9 o'clock service, a guy sat right on this front row and before the 9 a.m. service started, he talked to me about his life and we do all the time. Because he's recovered and he's been delivered from terrible sins that he tells me about openly now. And he talks about how different he is and how he goes now into very secular places where the name of Jesus is not desired. People push back against the name of Jesus, but he says, Bruce, I can't be quiet anymore. I know who saved me. I've got to say that name. I've got to tell them who he is. And I heard that, and it kind of knocked me back a step, and I said, brother, you weren't saying that a couple years ago. And he said, you're right, I wasn't. And I said, you know who did that? Jesus did. Because when you follow him day by day, if you have this miraculous transition where you stop thinking that you know better, and that's really what it is, and if you can get that clear in your head, you can be a wholehearted disciple of Jesus. Where is your life dark? In the areas that you think you know better than Jesus. And think about the folly of that. You're telling the Son of God who predicted his own death and resurrection that in this one area, you've got a better angle on it. You've got better information. You have more experience. Can you imagine the audacity and the foolishness of that stance? It's laughable when it's in the life of someone else. You know who it makes perfect sense to? Me, when I'm telling Jesus that I know better. What has Jesus spoken of in life? Everything. Everything. Sex, money, friendships, work, leisure, rest, food, friends, 
entertainment. It's all here. All of God, all the life that God made, he speaks with words of truth and wisdom. The truth of Jonah and the wisdom of Solomon and someone greater than Jonah and Solomon has now told us exactly what life is. And the foolish thing is to say, no, no, I got it. I see what to do. I know what to do. And to not have the proper and humble response. Listen to the transformation that Jesus can make. Jesus said, in the same way, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In other words, people who keep following after Jesus and obey him day by day are so transformed given enough time that the light of Jesus shines through them and we illuminate this dark world. Here's a character test and we're done. Paul wrote a group of Christians who had just barely believed in Christ, and he told them about the kind of life that God produces. This verse will be familiar to you. It's called the fruit of the Spirit, the verse says. This is the life that Jesus makes in people who keep obeying him and keep telling him that he knows better than we do. As I read these words, ask yourself if this life is true of you. If your name belongs next to these words, listen. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's fruit singular because you don't get to pick what Jesus produces in you. He is on his way to changing every one of his disciples into that kind of person. Jesus said in the same gospel of Luke that when a disciple is fully taught, he will be like his master. So if you're not naturally a loving person, guess what Jesus wants to do? If you'll only say to him day after day that he knows better and start doing what he asks, he'll make you into, can you guess? A loving person. I've seen him do it. I've seen him take men and women who were hard, edgy, uncompassionate, unmerciful, and make them into the most tender-hearted, compassionate, easily moved people that I've ever met. Who does that? Not self-improvement. Not going to a seminar. Jesus does that when you say to him day after day, you know better, I'm going to love you and trust you because I'm in a real relationship with you. How are you doing with self-control? Are you a self-controlled person? Jesus was. Jesus never once flew off the handle. Jesus never once walked away from a situation saying to himself, I wish I hadn't have done that. Jesus will make his disciples who obey him long enough, faithfully enough, day by day, it's incremental, it's personal transformation into the likeness of Christ, but he'll do it for you, and his light will shine in you so brightly that he will say to you, there's no darkness left in you. You're All in with me because you've given me access to every part of your life. That's the invitation for you to humbly acknowledge that Jesus knows better than you do. In whatever part you've been denying him and telling him that you know better, to stop and to say, someone greater than Jonah, someone wiser than Solomon loves me and came after me, so I will respond by trusting him. How does that work? There's only two possible groups of people in this room.
Those of you who are already following Jesus but have closed some of the doors in your life and told him, leave these parts alone. I know better. There are others of you who have been hearing about Jesus. You're close to him, but you have not fully trusted. What you need to do is make that U-turn in repentance and say, Jesus, I heard your message. I heard your diagnosis. I'm a sinner, but you came to save me. I accept. I am following you, and he will. He's doing it every week in the life of this church and churches around the world. Why? Because he's just greater. Let's pray. Lord, I pray now that you would work in the hearts of people who need you in this room, that if there's one here who doesn't know you as Savior, that they would turn to you in simple repentance and humbly tell you that they have sinned, that they feel the distance, they feel the shame, they feel the guilt, but they're coming to you and putting it all on you. Give them, Lord, the grace now to humbly call out to you to be their Savior. And for my brothers and sisters here, for my fellow disciples, help us, Lord, spare us from the folly of thinking we know better. Lord Jesus, be in charge of every part of our lives. Help us not to resist a single bit of who you are and what you've said, but to respond with simple obedience. We're going to conclude our service, as we always do, with one more song of worship and in giving. If you've come to Christ as Savior today, my invitation to you simply is to let us know in the card the decision, the step of faith you've taken today. We're soon starting a ministry that's going to fight that darkness very directly and specifically, but if you've identified a part in your life where there's disobedience, there's struggle, you really think you know better, you need help, you need prayer, you need confidential counsel or encouragement, let us know on the card. And this last act of giving, it can feel like a tack on, a little added thing at the church, just kind of this, this ritual. It's not. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, your heart always follows your money. If you're generous toward God, you're generous toward the gospel, the support of his local church, you'll love God. You'll love the gospel. You'll love the church more because you'll have some skin in the game. You'll have an investment made. This matter of giving where people so often think they know best, that I have to hang on everything God gives me or there won't be enough for me, this is an area very practically where God says try me, test me in these things, give and see what I do give and watch your heavenly father provide so as you decide and as you give God bless you and let's make this worshipful one of my kids does it through texting neither one of my kids know what a check is there's a lot of ways to give, it's really only a matter of the heart so Lord help us give with generous open hearts you love a cheerful giver so we ask you, Lord, to receive our worship through music and this giving, great or small, we give it to you because we love you in Christ's name. Amen.